Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore conservative one well thank you very much for joining me for this episode of conservative one the podcast defending traditions and freedom and obviously the topic of communist china has been uh, discussed by a lot of people lately principally because of the pandemic crisis that is enveloping the globe there's a lot of questions to be asked of communist china uh, the origins of the Wuhan coronavirus. Did it come from a, from a wet market, uh, as we're told? Or did it come from somewhere else? And why has China tried to cover things up? Why have they been so secretive? Has it played a major part in actually uh, making this situation worse for the rest of the world? What is China's legal liability when it comes to the economic and health implications of this coronavirus pandemic. And to answer all of that, I'm joined by someone who is very much in the know about China, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. He has had an illustrious career in the US military, beginning flying uh, stealth bombers uh, when uh, he graduated uh, early in his career back in 2007, if I've got that right, he's gone on to study Mandarin. He served in China. He was placed over there in a university in Shanghai where he immersed himself in the culture. He became became the defense attache to the embassy over there. He's gone on to have such an illustrious career. He he, has ended up being the senior China advisor to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he worked deep within the national security apparatus on uh, these sort of matters pertaining to China and also internet security in the United States. It's a pleasure to be joined uh, by you for this episode of Conservative One, General Spaulding. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much. I'm doing great. How are you? Very good. And I hope I've got uh, that short summary of your career right. Do you want us to just talk us through uh, your career in the military and how you come to be uh, the go-to person, I guess, on on China. So you know, I'm uh, my most of my career in the Air Force was as a uh, pilot, uh, first in the B-52, then the B-2, um, and then of course I applied for a program which is uh, in the military called the Olmsted Scholar Program, and it really allows three officers from each branch of service, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, to go and uh, study a language and then live in a, in a country abroad uh, for two years and study at a university in a foreign language and, uh, and really travel and really get to know the people and the, and the culture. And so I applied for that, con- that program in 2001 and uh, was accepted. And I uh, went to learn Chinese at our Defense Language Institute and then spent two years living in Shanghai as a, as a student at Tongji University, studying MBA courses and traveling around the country. Really got to know a lot about China and the Chinese people. 
And then, of course, because of that experience, uh, when I went back to flying the B-2, you know, as I would go to staff jobs in, in between my flying assignments, you know, I would have a job usually related to China policy. So I worked in the Office of Secretary of Defense. Mm. I worked in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then eventually the Air Force decided they wanted to put, put me forward as a senior defense official to Beijing. And so um, I spent two years in the, in the Pentagon working for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, as his China advisor and then went to be the senior defense official in Beijing. And then because of all of those experiences was chosen uh, during the first year of the Trump administration to um, be the architect, uh, chief architect of our national security strategy. So, uh, and I spent the really the last five years of my career in, in, in those jobs focused on the, uh, on the competition, the strategic competition between uh, the U.S. and China. And it was really focused primarily on economic and finance and trade. Uh, and information, not on uh, on the military competition, which I yeah. see as much uh, much less an issue. We'll talk about that in a while because in your book, Stealth War, uh, which I want to discuss, it's a fantastic book. I haven't fully read it read it yet, but uh, I've I've read a fair bit of it. And uh, you talk about about this. It's a new style of military of 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 strategy for China rather than just uh, the military strategy, but it still is a war is the principle that you put across in your in your book. But first, when you were in China, I understand you were there at the time of, was it the SARS pandemic? It, it was. In fact, uh, my family was evacuated. And myself and my family were evacuated due to SARS in 2003. We, we were living in Shanghai and... Uh, I don't know if you remember what was going on, but uh, SARS started down in Guangzhou mm. and spread throughout the country. And we were in Shanghai, but there was actually more reported effect infections in Beijing. And uh, I thought that was odd. And of course, you know, the entire embassy, non-essential staff were evacuated back to the United States. And we were we were kind of forgotten as we were, uh, as I was a student on a student visa in China. And so it wasn't really until a month after everybody had evacuated that the embassy <laughs> remembered I was in country and called us up and said, would we like to evacuate? Yeah. And so I thought it was probably prudent that we do so. But, you know, in terms of how they reacted to the yeah. virus, there's really no difference in, uh, in back then to today. So there were cover-ups galore there and, uh, uh, you know, the authorities trying to clamp down on people speaking out. Is that uh, what the what uh, happened back then? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, as I watched this unfold, it was eerily reminiscent of my time, you know, during the SARS. You know, the, the, the thankful thing about SARS is it was the, the R-naught was far below two, so we didn't see a lot of spread, uh, yep. not like coronavirus. But there have been a lot of questions that have been asked of communist China. I've got to tell you that I have been asking a lot of questions in my role as a member of parliament in Australia. And uh, uh, bizarrely, the one thing that comes back, particularly from the mainstream media, is, oh, this is just a conspiracy theory. I was even told that I was racist for raising questions uh, by one uh, journalist uh, who, uh, who works for our public broadcaster uh, down here in Australia. But 
this is not racist. This is not a conspiracy theory. There are very good reasons to be concerned about the lines that are being spinned by the Chinese Communist Party. And I know you share those concerns, General Spaulding. Should we believe the line that we are being fed that the Wuhan coronavirus, COVID-19, came out of a wet market? Um, I don't think so. And, and, um, but I'll caveat with saying uh, it's really impossible for us to know for sure. But to, to be truthful, you have to kind of follow the facts that we know. Yep. Uh, and the facts are that um, it's a bat-related coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We know that there was um, gain-of-function research going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology P4 lab on gain-of-function research in can, bat-related coronaviruses. Can you just explain gain-of-function research? It's quite a controversial uh, area. I know that's under a bit of scrutiny now. So, so the research in gain of function was really about getting these viruses, these bat-related coronaviruses that don't normally reside um, in the human host to be, um, to actually be infectious to the human host. And so um, it requires you to really feed the virus human tissue consistently until it actually adapts to um, to in, in becoming infectious to the human host. And so they were doing this research in, in, in that lab. And, 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 and that lab from memory is something like less than 300 metres from this Wuhan seafood market. And there is, I think there is even another uh, virology lab there in, in Wuhan as well. So it is an epicentre for research that... Uh, involves bats, involves coronaviruses, uh, and there's been long suspicion, we have heard, that there is biological warfare being planned at these uh, at these centres. Uh, not that we're saying that that was the cause. Again, we don't know. I guess there are a bunch of, of, of scientists that came out early in the uh, periodical Nature, I think it was, who tried to say that uh, there is no way this could have been manufactured in a lab but actually that's not the question that a lot of people are raising what they're saying is is there is natural cultivation of these viruses within labs and it could have been accidentally released that that is a possibility isn't it general spaulding well so um in the washington post this week there was a article um describing a state cable from the u.s embassy in 2018 expressing concern about the safety precautions being taken in the P4 lab after a visit made by the embassy staff to that lab. And so when you put together the fact that there was a report on this uh, gain-of-function research on bat-related coronaviruses that said that they had been successful in, in, uh, in modifying the virus to be infectious to the human host, and you put it together with the fact that the State Department, uh, U.S. State Department, had had uh, looked at the P4 lab and actually requested assistance from the United States for China for improving the, the uh, security or the safety precautions at the P4 lab. Uh, there's a there's a growing body of evidence that you know really is is concerning. Yeah, you're right. And and and, there, and there's less so, I might add, 
with regard to explaining how this, you know, came about from the wet market where the bats in question aren't yeah. aren't from that area of Wuhan where the wet market is. And um, of course, we also know from early reporting that uh, the patient one, patient zero, I guess as they call them, did not have any connection to the Wuhan seafood market. So how on earth could uh, they have caught the virus from there? So there is, I mean, there's all of these, from what I see, smoking guns. I mean, there's that fact. You've got uh, an institute which does bat-based, coronavirus-based research uh, that's right next door to this uh, facility that they say where the um, where the virus originated. You've you've got uh, uh, speculation by military and intelligence sources that that uh, virology lab is um, somewhere that's 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 doing uh, bio warfare based research. You've got all of these smoking guns, and then uh, the CCP appoints, as I understand it, the head of their bio warfare section in the military to take over that lab after all this blows up. That's correct, isn't it? Uh, and but also there the Xi Jinping has signed a biosecurity law so um, yeah. about biosecurity uh, you know so I mean there's a there's just a tremendous amount of so, so, uh, very interesting uh, coincidence coincidences uh, well as we know there's no such thing as uh, coincidence in politics and particularly in Chinese politics uh, uh, so with all of these uh, little tidbits lined up which are pointing to you know, that's the cause. Why on earth would media throughout the Western world, the United States, America, the UK, uh, be immediately responding to these allegations with, oh, this is a conspiracy theory, or this is racist? I even saw Facebook the other day. There is an excellent documentary I know you took part in, Brigadier General Spaulding, and that was something done by the Epoch Times. And Facebook is now quasi-censoring that documentary with a screen that sort of comes up that, that blurs, you know, the, the link that you click on, and it says, this post has been denoted as fake news. Click here to find out why. Uh, it's not fake news, but yet we're getting this from the media. Why are we getting that from the media? Well, I think... Um the, the what the what the scientists are saying uh, and and came out quite quickly to say, uh, which is interesting that they came out so quickly. They came out very quickly and said that this was from this was natural a naturally occurring virus, and and if you read the report that claims it's a naturally occurring virus. The report itself is filled with supposition and conjecture. And so it's very interesting that you have, you know, all of these facts that I just laid out. And yet the, the media is more willing to believe conjecture uh, in, these, in these articles that than the, the weight of the evidence that, that, that currently exists. So... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can't explain why the media has taken the position that they have. Uh, again, I am not saying that I know where the virus came came from. What I am saying is that there uh, are, are a number of facts that we know 
that really uh, begin to point uh, the finger in one direction and that it was that it was uh, uh, accidentally uh, you know released from a lab and but you know we're, we're not going to know that the, the truth just like in the Soviet Union where we didn't know a lot of things until the Soviet Union was no more and we had access to the archives we're, it's the same thing we're not going to know for sure There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. Conservative wine. Now, we know that uh, the Henry Jackson Society, this UK-based think tank, has uh, released a report which which says that China has broken international health regulations, have been quite clear about the different regulations that they broke, uh, notably that they let some 5 million people leave the city of Wuhan after they knew that this virus was so uh, virulent that there was basically a pandemic in the making. So they they have ascribed blame to the CCP, blame based on international protocols that have been broken and have said that there could be quite a legal bill for China to pick up. Do you believe that 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 could be the case? Uh, I think it will. Um, there, I think the um, many nations around the world will seek reparations. I think there's going to be, you know, probably uh, a lot of debt cancellations, or, or not debt cancellations, but essentially uh, nations that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative that are yeah. going to default on their debt. I think there's going to be um, clearly a reshuffling of supply chains, global supply chains, away from China. I think um, all of these things are are in the making. Yeah, the U.S. is going to lead the way on that. I have no doubt. I mean, uh, Donald Trump has taken a fairly hard line against China. Do you see him backing some of these moves to take some form of international action against China, as he's done already with the World Health Organization, that corrupt body that's uh, been in the pocket of China for quite some time? So, do you see that Trump is going to take some leadership action on this? Uh, no question. I think you're going to see a completely different uh, United States of America emerge out of this coronavirus, uh, what you what's really a debacle. Uh, and we're going to begin to not only rebuild the country, but begin to take much more of a leadership role in promoting the democratic system that I think we have in, in, in a long time. I'm sure if any country, particularly uh, a country like Australia, sent Xi Jinping a, uh, an IOU bill, uh, he'd probably put it in the, in the trash can file. Uh, but as you've said, there are measures that countries can take unilaterally, uh, such as um, we have debt bonds to China. We can just simply cancel them, say they're forfeit. We are not paying them back. Uh, you know, you, you owe us money. So um, the ledge is just being squared here, fellas. Uh, we could also, as a country, look at all of the state-owned corporations that own significant strategic assets throughout Australia, including, for instance, the long-term lease that they've got on the strategic port of Darwin. Uh, we could look at um, agricultural land and agribusinesses that they they currently own and uh, and acquire it back. That they are options that are very much open to Western nations, aren't they? And numerous options, and I think um, you're going to see 
an increasing level of of enforcement coming uh, from democracies towards uh, China as we as we come out of this coronavirus. Now, I want to go to your book, Stealth War, how China took over while America's elite slept. Probably wasn't just America's elite, uh, a lot of the Western world's elite. Uh, but your book is fantastic, and I want to refer to some sections of it and, and get um, uh, get your response to, uh, to some of these sections. You've made this really, really uh, insightful statement about the West's and America's relationship with China. Blinded by our own greed and the dream of globalisation, we've been convinced that free trade automatically unlocks the shackles of authoritarianism and paves the way to democracy. The promise of cheap labour, inexpensive goods and soaring stock prices has been spellbinding. But by giving up our manufacturing expertise and dominance, we have given up our independence and sold out our own citizens by stripping them of work. And we've been duped. Investing in an authoritarian nation that insists the money never leave the country is basically allowing our pockets to be picked or rather allowing our treasury to be raided. That remark is so true, not just of, of America, but of Australia as well. Uh, would you like to elaborate on that, uh, General Spaulding? Well, I think we believed, uh, and, and it was our foreign policy, United States foreign policy, uh, that if we enabled the rise of China, the growth uh, of China's economy, uh, and the prospering of the Chinese citizens, that from a combination of economic theory and social theory, economic theory being free markets create wealth, social theory saying that wealth creates democracy, that if we enabled that by giving them our technology, innovation, talent, and capital, that they would democratize and eventually the Chinese people would be freed. And the Chinese Communist Party realized uh, in, during the Tiananmen massacre that this was going on and took uh, measures, took steps to essentially turn our openness into a vulnerability by channeling their, their activity uh, as a, an incentive system that really incentivizes the wealth creation but doesn't tie it to any uh, principles. And so uh, not only does it work for Chinese companies where they have the access to the intelligence apparatus and the finance uh, resources of the state, plus they're protected in their own country from any competition via non-market-based mechanisms and they're they're subsidized in, in foreign countries. And then because we were trying to enable them, we made it so their companies had an advantage over our own companies in our own country. And of course, the Chinese essentially took advantage of that and, and incentivized not only their own companies to win, but also our own companies and our own investment banks to support them in that effort. Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on more of the economics behind China, which are dodgy, you outline in your book um, in a minute. But uh, interestingly, you talk about this sort of push to democratise China through uh, through our trade. And I, I, I have an experience myself. In 2007, uh, there's an Australian program where they pick... Uh, uh, people they think are young and upcoming 
leaders and uh, I was selected then as a as a city councillor to uh, go on this program, which uh, we went over to China for a week and we were hosted by an organisation called the All China Youth Federation, which just happened to be the youth wing of the Communist Party. Anyway, uh, long story short, uh, these people seemed very nice and the whole place seemed, uh, you know, uh, everything they were showing us was nice and pretty and um, it looked like the free market in action. Over a few drinks, um, we said to one of our hosts, uh, so you look like you're almost halfway there. You know, you've got uh, shops open. Like, we're surprised at seeing all this uh, uh, this stuff here. Why don't you just go the whole hog and allow people to have a vote? Well, the conversation turned pretty dark pretty quickly, and this out- astounding statement was made to me by someone there who is now deep within the CCP, and it just shows the the sort of groupthink that goes on in China. He said, well, you Westerners think that you have the only form of democracy. There is a, such a thing as Asian democracy. Democracy isn't just Greek democracy. And me and the other Australians sort of looked at each other until someone turned to him and just said, that's where the word come from. Democracy is based on Greek democracy. <laughs> I mean, to even think you can change the term democracy to say that a one-party rural authoritarian rule is somehow an Asian form of democracy, it's quite nonsense. And Taiwan bells the cat on that. Um, but to go back to your book, you talk about unrestricted warfare, uh, this document that the CCP has that was written by two senior colonels in the China's People Liberation Army. And you quote a line out of that, the new principles of war are no longer using armed force to compel the enemy to submit to one's will, but rather are using all means, including armed force or non-armed force, military and non-military, lethal and non-lethal means to compel the enemy to accept one's interest. I mean, this goes to the, the trade wars and uh, the decline of manufacturing that's resulted from that. Uh, This goes to even this pandemic. Would you agree with that? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely agree with that. And and how do you think that that's playing out? Well, I mean, I think you see in particular with regard to the pandemic, the, the terrible reliance of the of the United States now for all of the things that we that we need to deal with the pandemic, uh, you know the the supply of masks, uh, of pharmaceuticals. Um, it's it's really become quite clear, you know, the challenge that we created um, with with this with this relationship. Well, I'm I'm going to get straight to the end of your book where you say that there are four things that need to be done in order to. Uh, Uh, fix this situation. This is from the United States' point of view, but this could easily be applied to Australia. Uh, I'm just going to go through that very quickly. Lead with principles, strengthen America, organise to compete, and rebuild the international order. Could I get you to speak to those four principles? Yeah, you know, it it really is about recognising that globalisation and the internet have changed the game. And in order to play the game in a way that allows us to promote our principles, we have to protect our societies in different ways. We currently have, you know, enormous military capability in the United States. 
the most advanced military that, that, that exists. But it's not protecting American and Americans and American companies in the ways that the Chinese are going after them by, you know, being essentially using economics and finance and trade and information and media and politics to undermine our economic prosperity and our social cohesion. So it's a different way of going at the population. And so we need to do things like have tariffs. We need to enforce investment audits. We need to enforce, you know, and, and, you know, protect our science and technology from investment in predatory, from predatory Chinese companies. And we need to invest in our own country. You know, for example, we haven't, we're $5 trillion in arrears in infrastructure in the United States. We haven't built uh, manufacturing. In fact, it's been completely offshore to China. Science and technology, STEM education, all of these things are about you know, rebuilding the economic vitality because economic security underpins national security. And then when, when we do this, we should be working with like-minded nations to do the same so that we're all protecting our, our citizens and our companies. We're rebuilding our, con- our countries. And then we can together work together uh, as democracies to promote the the kind of principles and values that the international order was founded on. We stopped doing that and we allowed instead the Chinese Communist Party with uh, other nations that had slowly incentivized using its market pool and financial resources to essentially undermine international institutions like, as we've seen, the World Health Organization the World Trade Organization, the United Nations. You look in the United Nations, you you have the UN Human Rights Council that is essentially full of nations that are human, documented human rights violators. I mean, the entire international order in the space of three decades since the end of the Cold War has been turned into an order that doesn't promote democracy because uh, democracies don't stand together to promote those principles, Mm -hmm. but rather has been taken over by the Chinese Communist Party, and then those nations that they've influenced to stand by their side to promote their own interests. And before we actually implement these solutions that you're talking about, it's important that people understand that there actually is a problem if they don't know by now. I mean, a lot of people just revert to the, it's just free trade, we just need to trade with them and make money off them. But as you've outlined in your book, and I've thought for a long time, China is a complete and utter Ponzi scheme. It's based on funny money uh, that's regulated at the point of a gun, basically, in terms of, of what their currency's worth. They're building fake cities here, there, and everywhere. Can I get you to briefly talk about how China is just a big Ponzi scheme that, that really needs uh, a relook at? Well, so they have in, they have something like 300% of their GDPs in debt. So they have something like... $50 trillion in debt with only $2 trillion in assets in their banking system. But they're able to continue to perpetuate that for two major reasons. One, their financial system is closed. So their currency doesn't actually trade on a market. The party, yeah. the Chinese Communist Party, sets the price of the currency mm-hmm. because it's not convertible. So it's money. Number one, it prints money and it, and, it, and it sets the price of the money. And it can move it up or it can move it down depending on what its goals are. So it has a closed financial system. 
number one. Number two, it uses Hong Kong as a window to window to Western capital markets to suck out money via uh, both stocks for Chinese companies and bonds for Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. And these stocks and bonds are really fake because the companies themselves aren't required to be audited like our own companies. And so our investment dollars go into these companies. And many times that we've seen recently with Luckin Coffee, it's a complete, it's a complete disaster and the investors lose their money. There's also a, a documentary called the China hustle where a lot of these reverse mergers were making sure that investors were losing all of their money. Again, there's no auditing of it. So closed financial system where the Chinese Communist Party sets the value of the currency and then no auditing of their companies, yet they're still allowed to raise money on Western capital markets. And this, th- these two things really perpetuate you know, this, this Ponzi scheme going forward. And people say, well, they're going to collapse because they have $50 trillion in debt. A Ponzi scheme continues to work as long as people are willing to put into it. Right. And because our governments have turned a blind eye, our, the investment banks in Wall Street and others who are getting a fee for each stock and each bond the Chinese uh, sell are continuing to push these on investors in democracies that don't know that they're getting a sham uh, uh, deal. Mm-hmm. We're propping it up, in other words, propping up one of the most authoritarian regimes in the world. Very much so. Look, it'd be remiss of me not to ask uh, uh, someone like yourself who has worked inside the Trump administration what's going to happen uh, this year with the US presidential elections. Um, and uh, if I can segue into that, um, the revelations that you have in your book or that you restate in your book about Joe Biden's links with China through his son, Hunter Biden. What's going to happen in the US election? And uh, should we be concerned about those links to China with Joe Biden? I, I So I think the president's going to re, uh, get reelected uh, in the landslide. I think the American people are, um, have a clear-eyed view of, of things now. I think we should be concerned about Joe Biden and many of the establishment politicians in our country. They have been pushing for a long time for, you know, promoting the Chinese Communist Party and and enabling their rise. And I think it's time for uh, new blood in our political system that really recognizes totalitarianism and communism as a threat to democracy Mm. and and seeks to protect the American people. And I think that's what's going to happen. I think you're going to see a big change in American politics. And, and I'm and it's going to be because the Chinese Communist Party pushed too hard uh, and with this coronavirus. You know, they knew when those people left Wuhan that this would be a global pandemic. They miscalculated. And I think uh, I think the free world is going to say enough's enough. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, for one, am hopeful that Australia is going to be right there. Um, uh, by America's side as we begin to reassert democracy in the international order. Well, I'm very much hopeful that we will. Now, a question that I ask, uh, this is the final question to every person I have on my 
podcast is what would you do if you were prime minister for a day? What would you do if you were president for a day? What's the one big thing that you would do, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding? I think that I would seek to make tariffs permanent for China uh, and much like it was prior to them entering the WTO, we had a vote in the Congress on tariffs for China and the vote depended on were they violators of human rights and were they a, a market economy? And, and I would say, you know, those, those tariffs have to be permanent until uh, they can establish that they are no longer human rights violators and a non-market-based economy. I think just that alone would be um, tremendously uh, uh, go a long way to, to solving our problems. Well, look, thank you very much. And I want to encourage all of my listeners to uh, uh, either download your book from Amazon or uh, go and buy it directly uh, uh, off the shelf. Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elites Slept. Uh, fantastic book and a fantastic conversation uh, that I've just had with you, uh, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, of, now of the Hudson Institute. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen.